because not only are we all going to die, but we're going to die have thirsty. Less, I was I was totally beer. on the fence until now. <laughs> yeah, uh, see, this I knew this is finally now we're officially finally a crisis. Find something to get you to. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Welcome once again to Free Associations for the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by daylight savings time. So I did not know until I got here to the UK that the US and the UK go on to or off of, I never remember which is which, daylight savings time at different times. Did you all know this? No. So you guys switched your clocks, what, a week ago, two weeks ago? Yeah, last Sunday. A week and ago. We we don't switch for another week or so, which screws up all of my meetings, which are, God, I'm sure. you know, with people in the U.S. or people in other countries. For for the past two weeks, I have been showing up to all of my phone calls at the wrong time. Anyway. Okay. That's annoying. So for anyone who doesn't know, I'm Matt Fox from the Department of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I'm here as always with Chris Gill and Don Thea. Good afternoon, late evening, Matthew. And they are from the Departments of Global Health at the BU School of Public Health. And as always, Don and Chris are in the Godly Studio. I am in London. You know, so, I did this uh, web search the other day, and I yeah. was, I was, I was, you know, because I know you're you're overseas doing your sabbatical and having a really great yeah. time, and I'm totally jealous. And I, I googled Matt Fox and podcast, and up comes the Population Health Exchange website. Do you know that there's a thing called the Population Health Exchange Didn't website? Know. Yeah, no, no it's the Center for it? Lifelong Learning, and it's this really cool resource put out by Boston University to to promote lifelong learning outside of traditional educational centers. And they they have this really cool podcast on it, by the way, called the Free Associations, which you should check out. So, Chris, I am so glad you did that because I'm going to read to you the line that is in the script, which says, I really have nothing clever to say this week. Just go to the Population Health Exchange website. And we can't talk about traffic circles. We've done that. And that was totally spontaneous. We Uh could talk about crop circles. No, no. Okay. Well, uh, the thing you forgot, Chris, was uh, people need to go onto the website and uh, rate us on their iTunes or their Stitcher, whatever they do. All right. Well, in that case, we could just skip right to the show. Or Rotten Tomatoes, or whatever uh, they do. What's that? Rotten Tomatoes, Five Chilies, you name it. Scoville Units. All right. Now on to the show. So today in our first segment, our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at the relationship between complementary medicines and survival amongst patients with curable cancers. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we are going to talk about self-plagiarism something that actually keeps me up at night. And then in our Amazing Amusing, we'll get into some of the strange things in our field, or Chris will enlighten us on the seasonality of STDs. (laughs) So let's get into it, segment one. So today we're talking about an article that looked at a new... Oh, my my script says a new way to treat peanut allergy, which would not be correct. (laughs) You need an administrative assistant is what you need. Intravitus marmite. Exactly. All right, so in segment one, we are going to get into an article that looked at uh, whether or not use of complementary medicines during uh, for ca- uh, during cancer treatment was impacting survival. So it was published in the journal JAMA Oncology, and it was entitled Complementary Medicine, Refusal of Conventional Cancer Therapy, and Survival Among Patients with Curable Cancers by Skylar Johnson, 
from the Department of Therapeutic Radiology at the Yale School of Medicine and colleagues. Now, this was not a brand new study. It wasn't an old study either, but this was done in 2018. And the reason we came across this one is because I finally found out how you can identify what the most media cited publications were of the prior year. And this was one of them. And so we thought this one was worth a a look at. So here are some of the headlines. The BBC News says complementary cancer therapies linked to reduced survival. NBC News says alternative medicine can be fatal in cancer. Now, here's an interesting one. The Guardian says from Andrew Wakefield to Brexiteers, snake oil salesmen are making us sick. (laughs) Mm, I like that. I like that. Yeah, it's interesting. And it relates back to our last episode. Uh, And then the New York Times says worshiping the false idols of wellness, which I thought was another pretty cool one. So, Don, can you uh, walk us through this? Walk us through the study. Tell us what it was about. Sure, Matt. At the outset, I want to make the distinction in the minds of the listeners about the difference between complementary and alternative medicine. And yeah, because I got confused on this yeah, one. Yeah, this is a little confusing. The study we're going to talk about was looking at the use of complementary methods, therapeutic methods, in addition to or or in addition to cancer chemotherapy, whereas alternative medicine would be in place of rather than in addition to. And the reason these authors approached this in part was that they had done a prior study that was published in January of 2018 in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute, where they looked at alternative medicine. And, and by that, they, they, they grouped together the use of herbs and botanicals, vitamins, minerals, traditional Chinese medicine, homeopathy, naturopathy, as well as specialized diets and or massage, acupuncture, yoga, meditation, and all the rest of those. And and compared the survival um, in terms of the alternative medicines versus conventional cancer therapy, and they clearly established that um, conventional chemotherapy is better than the use of alternative medicines. No surprise there, I don't think, in terms of the last 40 years, 50 years of, of medical science. In terms of the overall risk of death um, in cancer chemotherapy, in comparison to alternative, it was a hazard ratio of 2.5. For breast cancer, it was 5.6. For colorectal cancer, it was 4.5. So they clearly established that conventional chemotherapy um, confers a greater survival than alternative medicine. But what they wanted to ask with this study was, um, as an adjunct, in essence, to conventional chemotherapy, is there an effect on survival. So they looked at these factors, again in a registry, this time it was a US-based registry, the National Cancer Database, and they looked at factors associated with the selection of um, CM or complementary medicine, the association between the use of CM, complementary medicine, and the delay of initiation of conventional chemotherapy or refusal of further Um, conventional chemotherapy, which we'll call CCT from now on, and how these factors mediated survival outcomes in patients who use conventional, I'm sorry, complementary medicine compared with those who use no complementary medicine. The National National Cancer Center database, um, they they pulled out 10 years of cancer diagnoses from January 1, 2004 to January 1, 2014, Um, and they looked at one of the Four most they looked at the four most prevalent um, cancers listed in that database, and that's breast, prostate, lung, and colorectal cancers. They didn't look at any of the other cancer, cancers. 
apparently this database captures 70% of all newly diagnosed cancers in the United States treated at conventional centers. There were over 1,500 Commission on Cancer accredited, accredited centers in the United States. So there was a portion of cancer that was being treated outside of those cancer accredited centers that would not have gotten into this database. And they looked at at least one conventional chemotherapy defined as chemotherapy, conventional cancer therapy defined as chemotherapy, radiation therapy, surgery, or hormone treatment. They excluded cases that presented with metastatic or stage four disease who had received treatment with an intent to be palliative only, meaning not curative, really just to alleviate some of the manifestations of the disease, and that's usually done at the end stages of cancer, or who, are, or who had unknown treatment status, clinical, or demographic characteristics. Um, and I, I went to the database and looked up the specific complementary medicine question and that, that was indicated, and it, it read, other unproven colon cancer treatments administered by non-medical personnel in addition to any cancer chemotherapy as noted in the patient record. So it's a very broad definition of what complementary medicine is. By definition, it's really anything given by a non-medical personnel. So that's a little hazy. They looked at a whole bunch of different covariates that they threw into the model. No, that's they didn't throw anything. Still, didn't they toss, I think that they tossed them one of my pet yeah, peeves. Yeah, or they... Ugh. They added them willy-nilly. They, right. they hurled them into the model. <laughs> they randomly they selected them the, right, using can, a pseudo-random number generator. <laughs> cancer type, clinical stage one through three, age, race, sex, comorbidity score, a zero, one, or two on a conventional comorbidity um, scale, type of health insurance, non-private Medicaid, Medicare, or government, median income, high school education, geographic region, northeast, south Atlantic, midwest, south, intermountain, west, or Pacific, city, rural, and treatment facility type, either an academic or community treatment site. And they did propensity score matching because this was an observational study going forward and it wasn't, it wasn't a randomized trial. So um, they, they felt compelled to do that. The outcomes that they looked for were treatment delay and treatment refusal, not including refusal reason not specified and did not include patients with contraindications or treatment risk factors. So those were excluded because they had other reasons for treatment delay or refusal. Mm-hmm. And the delay, the days between the diagnosis and the first treatment, um, and then the primary outcome was overall survival or time from diagnosis to death. So included in this database were 1.9 million subjects, and 258 indicated that they had um, received complementary medicine, or 0.01% of the total database. They found that... 0.01%, so it was very uncommon. Very, very, yeah, 256 out of 1.9 million. They found that complementary medicine was more likely to be used by younger people, females, those with breast cancer or colorectal cancer, and or um, individuals who had higher income or higher education. And certain parts of the country, too, interestingly. Also, the people who resided in the Intermountain West and the Pacific regions tended to use complementary medicine more than in the other regions. And also, um, people with less bad disease, i.e., they had stage one disease or they had a comorbidity score of zero. Those are the ones that tended to use complementary medicine. So in their multivariate analysis, controlling all the covariates that I mentioned, the complementary medicine use was associated with breast cancer as the cancer type 
of the, uh, that the individual had, or colorectal cancer. And the, uh, the hazard ratio for breast cancer was 7.2, and for colorectal cancer, it was 4.2. For, for using CM. Versus prostate, which they, they indicated was sort of the reference, mm-hmm. or the reference um, cancer. But, but so you're not, talking about, you're not talking about mortality outcomes here. You're just talking about was Who chose complementary what? medicine yes. more likely to be used with a particular right. type of cancer? Well, yep. Right. And, and likewise... Uh, the hazard ratio, if you lived in the Mountain West, was 4.6. And if you lived in the Pacific West, it was 6.6 versus if you lived in the East, the Northeast. So, so West Coasters are much more likely to use complementary Right, medicine. right. Yep. So, so let, me, let me just stop there and, and mention that n- none of the three of us felt, complete, felt that the, the authors were completely clear in how they indicated um, who received complementary medicine. And we're not sure whether that 258 that I talked about before um, were people who received complementary medicine for the duration of their therapy after having received only one dose of CCT or whether they received only complementary medicine, which would have made it alternative medicine. So we were left, all three of us were left a little unclear in terms of exactly what those categories were. It was, it was unclear, and I think that's something we can come back to. Yeah, yeah, we'll come back to that. So they created, as I said, they did propensity score matching, and they um, created a matched um, sample where they looked at the delay and the refusal according to whether individuals received complementary medicine at some point. And they found that there was no difference if, they ch- if the individuals chose to receive complementary medicine and a delay of the, I believe it was initiation was of same. chemotherapy or a delay in a subsequent treatment for CCT. Now that wouldn't apply also obviously unclear. to surgery because surgery presumably is, 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 is a one-off. Whereas yeah. chemotherapy and radiation therapy and hormonal therapy are, are, are multiple things. Right. But it was also unclear. I agree. But they found a big difference in terms of refusal. And again, it's refusal for subsequent cancer chemotherapy. They found that 7% of people who were receiving CM refused to have the surgery versus 0.1% of those who didn't. 34 for chemo versus 3.2, 53 for radiation versus 2, and 34 for hormone versus 3.8. So really a tenfold increase in the likelihood that conventional chemotherapy or conventional cancer therapy was going to be refused if you were currently taking complementary medicine. The univariate analysis showed that there was a slight difference in terms of, of survival for those who um, were, were in the CM group, 82% survival versus in the non-CM group, it was 87% survival. When CM, they, complementary medicine. Right. Complementary medicine. Yep. So in, in terms of the multivariate analysis, when they threw in all of those covariates, no! they lobbed in they all those co- covariates. <laughs> they found that there were bigger differences. So the survival in, complement, in the complementary medicine group was 85% for breast cancer versus 95% with a hazard ratio of 1.94. For colorectal, it was 81 complementary versus 84 for non-complementary for hazard ratio of 2.61. And for prostate and lung, there was no difference. But after they adjusted for delay and refusal, they found that these associations was, went, went away. Right. Basically went away and was no longer significant. Therefore, the association of death is linked to treatment refusal, not necessarily any biological interaction between complementary medicine and conventional cancer therapy. Yeah. 
So let me let me well, see. hold there. There, there. There's a there's a lot going on in this this study. Yeah. I, and and I think that, that we have a lot that we want to we want to say about it. But I, before we do, I'm curious. You know what? What do you think was the reason why this was such a hot topic in the news? Yeah. I mean, there's. It felt to me like there is a um, sort of a value judgment being played out here in the media that you know people who use complementary medicine are somehow irrational and now they're paying a price in their lives with their lives yeah, and that, oh, that should be sanctioned. I mean, that, that really came through in the, in the, the, the titles that you had cited at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I guess I would say, but maybe the interest in it came from the fact that, you know, people are actually seeking alternative yeah. to uh, traditional cancer therapies in large numbers. And so this would be something that people would be quite interested in. Yeah. It's a fascinating topic. I think there's also a lot of concern in the medical community about about not necessarily people using these these methods, but people going to these methods first and then delaying what has been shown through rigorous clinical trials to be perhaps at times not wildly effective, but fairly effective medications, whereas there's no evidence to suggest that these complementary medicines on their own are at all effective mm-hmm. for, sure. for, for cancer. Therapy. I know. Sure. I, I, I know. I know. This is this is a this is a dicey issue that I'm going to wade into here, and I and I'm and I want to be very circumspect. And I said it. And Don is grimacing already because he knows where I'm going. But I, um, I want to say that I don't know Dr. Gill <laughs> at all. So <laughs> when Don was citing the statistics about like if someone had used complementary medicine, the probability that they would refuse conventional chemo uh, cancer therapy was significantly increased. And across the different modalities, the refusal rate was like, you know, if they use CM was tenfold, up to 20-fold refusal rates for certain modalities. And yet the the difference in mortality between those who did and did not refuse their therapy um, in the unadjusted analysis was was surprising. I think you're, I think you're asking too much of the data. I know. I'm just saying I, because I don't trust. I, I don't particularly trust the study. The I don't particularly trust the study. But it was underwhelmed because I would have thought like if you if you opted out of condi- you know conventional cancer therapy by a ten to twenty fold ratio, that your mortality would be increased by a tremendous amount rather than by two or three percent. I was sort of surprised at how little difference it made. But with that said, I don't really trust the study because I think there's oodles of self selection bias here. Wait, 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 wait. wait. <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. What do you? I'm not. I'm not following what you're, you're you're basing that conclusion on. So you're saying, if I understand correctly, that there was a a difference in the complementary therapy users. Complementary. Am I using the right term? Complementary medicine users yes. compared to the non-users in terms of mortality, but that 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 difference went away when you accounted for treatment refusal. Yes, in meaning in the, uh, what the, what they imply, and I'll just read their quote. There was no significant association between complementary medicine and survival once treatment delay or refusal was included in the model. Meaning that yep. much of the the reason why there was increased mortality was because they were opting out of conventional chemotherapy. But exactly. But 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 what what I'm saying here is that like you look at the the rates of chemotherapy use in the you know, the non-CM users versus the CM users went from 34% to 3%. And radiotherapy went from 53% to 2%. And hormone therapy went from 34% to 3%. And surgery went from 7% to 0.1%. And so these are huge differences in the CM versus non-CM users. And yet the mortality difference, like for colon cancer, went from 82% in the, the CM, you know, the people who opted out of, of conventional 
cancer therapy to 84% amongst those who accepted it. So it's, it's an absolute difference of 2%, despite a 10 to 20-fold reduction in refusal of the conventional chemo, uh, cancer okay. therapies. That I'm, I'm struck by the, the, the difference in the magnitude of those two variables. I would have thought that refusing cancer therapy would lead to a much higher they, risk of mortality. I, don't, I disagree with what you're saying there. Why? They're not saying that, they're not saying that the refusing treatment was, was associated with no difference. They're saying... When you account for treatment refusal, there is no difference. So all that says is if you only compare those who refuse treatment, then there was no difference. And if you only compare those who didn't refuse treatment with respect to complementary medicine or not, there was no difference. That to me, that's all that says. It's not saying that that the treatment refusal in fact it's saying it's saying, I think it's saying the opposite of what you're saying. It's saying that that complementary medicine is leading to treatment refusal, which is leading to mortality. Yeah, I agree. It is going for mortality. But, it, you know, in the in the model that does not adjust for whether they refused, whether they opted out of conventional cancer therapy, the hazard ratio for death was 2.1. And in the yep. model that does adjust that, it goes to from, you know, goes to a 1.4. In fact, those two differences are not very great. And they, they, they emphasize the lack of statistical significance, which we will all agree is not the judgment, is not the standard by which we should be judging. We should be looking at the absolute difference between those two hazard ratios. And it doesn't change and, very much. But aren't you presupposing that there's a linear relationship between the use or non-use of, of complementary medicine and, and refusal and, and survival, <sighs> for one thing? The other thing is that we know that Life can be prolonged through all sorts of alternative measures in people that get cancers, and we're only looking at a 10-year period. So it could be that there's, you know, there's a whole lot of cancer-associated deaths that are not captured with this snapshot. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're right, and 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 I think the the the, the issue that you highlighted earlier, Don, that that you know, they had 1.9. Million individuals in this database, and yet they were only able to identify 258. Well, that's people? that's where things get unclear this in terms make of, any sense of at how, all. how 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 this I paper mean, was written because we're all confused about what that 258 doesn't make any is, right? So the the more you know, one very plausible explanation is that maybe the database is is very rarely captures the use of complementary medicine. And it's not that there's only 258 out of 1.9 million. It's just that there was no data at all for the vast majority of these people, and they can only find 258 for whom this, this variable had been included. And what is to make us assume that those 258 are somehow representative of the, of the rest? You know, there's so many reasons why that would not necessarily be true. And in fact, and I 100% and I support what you just said, and, and in fact, you could make an argument that says, the reason those 258 ended up in the database at all was because there was particular concern that therapy was not going to be effective for this person. And so they went on to a, right. a, a different treatment. And that, you know, you put that in the database to explain why this patient is refusing therapy and is going to go on to have higher mortality. Yeah. So I I agree with you. I mean, the crux of this for me is that, that we're talking about 258 patients out of one or two million. That's got to be an incredibly select group. Now, they do this propensity score approach, which is something I don't think we've talked much about, which is a way of trying to account for the the potential differences between those who received the complementary medicine and those who didn't. And I don't want to go too much into the, the details other than to say, you know, we don't get much detail on how that method was used. And we generally, I mean, the, the, the my understanding is you don't want to really use complementary um, 
propensity score matching in cases where you have a time-dependent exposure like this because it just isn't designed for accounting for those time dependencies very well. I could be wrong about that, but that is that is my best understanding. Yeah. So, but the fact, you know, the, the, the fact that, that it is this very, very select subset of which we don't even really understand who they are or how they are selected uh, really just makes me makes me concerned about being able to draw much in terms of conclusions from from this data. Yeah, Matt, I just pulled up the supplementary table um, on this. Yep. Don't believe and, it. And it says characteristics of patients with breast, prostate, lung, and colorectal cancer. And it's pretty clear that there were 258 individuals out of the 1.9 million who um, received complementary medicine, which would be 186 out of 732,000 in the breast group, um, and 15 out of 291,000 in the lung, and 27 out of 724,000 in the prostate group. So these are really small numbers. I don't and it just doesn't make believe it. I, mean, I don't believe like it. Massive misclassification. I just Sorry? don't believe Going it. On. Matt? Yeah. And potential for selection bias. Yeah. Yeah, I don't believe it. I, I, I find that preposterously, this, but, that ratio is so small, I just don't buy but, it. Don't and, buy but it. the question was so vaguely yeah. formulated. And, and I, I, you know, I, you can just imagine, I mean, you're, you're saying you don't believe it because your personal experience is that everybody that gets cancer chemotherapy does something else in addition just because it makes That's them what feel. I've seen. It's because it makes them feel better or, or, or for whatever reason. But these numbers don't support that, which makes me immediately suspect for how the question was asked that goes right. into the cancer database. Yeah. And not only was it not something that was focused on, it was sort of an add-on, ad hoc thought. It was poorly phrased, and it's probably way, way underrepresenting yeah. the number of people that actually took some sort of quote-unquote complementary medicine. Mean, many of the hospitals that I trained in had services that like actively promoted complementary medicine. Right. It was systematic. Right. So how can this possibly be true? You know, in the limitation yeah. section of this paper, the authors state what, that there are many types of complementary medicine, none of which were specified in the question that they derive the data from. But they go and say herbs, botanicals, vitamins, minerals, probiotics, Ayurvedic medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, homeopathy, naturopathy, deep breathing, yoga, tai chi, qigong, acupuncture, chiropractic, osteopathic, manipulation, meditation, massage, prayer, there's special diet. You know, there's just a ton of right. things that there's... They're speculating as might be in that yeah. 258 people. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I think that that makes me deeply suspicious that uh, about the, the methodology of this paper. Me I too. also wonder, because they never say in the paper, how do they actually track the outcomes? Like, how do they know who died? They never say that in the methods. You know, they, right. they just they mean, gloss right you past could, you that. Could, yeah. You know, right. you don't know whether it is is just the data that's being fed back. From from family members or whether they've referenced this with the national death index, right? It's true. I, I don't remember seeing that. Yeah, yeah and we don't. The, none of us have any real experience with the cancer database, and it could be that the cancer database is very scrupulous about about sure. that because that's Absolutely. that's kind of the core of of why it exists. But it's possible that it's it's quite incomplete. So I would add, maybe this is my last point here: is that e even sort of setting aside all the methodological concerns we have about this paper, I think the the message that it's telling is also incomplete. Because like, even if it's true, like, even if it's true that refusal of conventional chemotherapy, uh, cancer therapy, excuse me, conventional cancer therapy increases mortality, which seems very plausible. 
even if that's true, there's still, it's still only part of the story, right? Because people make health decisions not based solely on mortality, on longevity. They make decisions based on quality of life mm-hmm. and, yep. and, and the perception of the likelihood of cure. So one reason people, you might use complementary medicine is because they believe it will be more effective than, than conventional cancer therapy. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's not true. I mean, I don't want to get into that. But another reason they were to do it is that they, they have very little belief that that conventional chemotherapy for something like you know stage three breast cancer is going to be curative and they're right actually it isn't very effective we know it's not very effective for solid tumors in particular that these these drugs don't work very well although i think i think it's important to point out one caveat and that and that is that to a great extent we are on the verge of in essence a mini revolution in cancer chemotherapy with with the advent of immunochemotherapy I think all bets are off and and it will continue to get better in leaps and bounds because it's a much better approach and much better technology. So this is sort of past history. Right. This is 2004 to 2013. So we're sort of predating much of the the revolution that is occurring right now. But the other thing I I was trying to get to is that the quality of life dimension is super important because you might yes, know, yes, you know, yes really I will important. die yes, four absolutely. months earlier on average if I refuse these treatments, but my quality of life will be vastly superior because I am not taking these, these drugs. Yeah. That's true. And maybe they're making that calculus. And so we should not apply a value judgment to that either. Agreed. No, I, I think we want to be very clear. We're not making a, a value judgment at all. In fact, I, you know, I don't know the complementary medicine literature well enough to know whether or not any of these complementary medicines are in any way effective but I don't think it necessarily matters, right? People, people may be making decisions to, to, to take treatments that make them feel better, even if they don't prolong their life. And that is, if, if that works for them, that is perfectly fine. That's a different question, though, from whether or not it, it leads to mortality. And I don't think there's a lot of evidence here to suggest one way or the other because of the way that the, the data was analyzed. So one of the things that first popped out to me in reading this paper was, I don't really know exactly what the study question is. And that's the, you know, it's, 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 there's lots of questions you could ask. So you could ask the question, is complementary medicine instead of treatment, you know, more effective for X, Y, or Z? Does complementary medicine cause you in some way to refuse treatment, traditional treatment? Does complementary medicine prolong life? Does taking the two together, you know, reduce uh, mortality compared to, or increased mortality compared to just taking one or the other. I don't know what the question is here. And it seems like this is much more analysis driven than it is question driven. Uh, and therefore I think that's part of why we're having trouble figuring it out. So it isn't that I'm, I'm skeptical that their, uh, their results could ever be true. I'm just saying I don't have much evidence to go on here. And given the very highly selected population, given the potential for misclassification, confounding, and selection bias. I just, I, I struggle to know what to make of this. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I feel at the end of this that I, I, I'm, I'm not persuaded that my opinion has changed at all based on this paper. Mm-hmm. Make it three. Okay. I think in that case, we can, we can move on since we're all in agreement finally on something. Ooh, that happens so rarely. Uh, what's that? That happens very rarely. It does happen so rarely. All right, so let's move on to our second segment. Which is, um, we want to have a conversation about self-plagiarism, and this probably won't be a, one of our longest conversations, because maybe there isn't as much to say, but it is something that keeps me up at night, and therefore I did want to want to bring this one to the table. And it came up because uh, it was inspired by a blog post by uh, a guy named Mark Israel, entitled Self-Plagiarism, 
When is repurposing text ethically justifiable? It was published on Q Curis, Q-R-I-U-S. And uh, Mark is a adjunct professor at the School of Social Sciences at the University of Western Australia, among others. And the crux of the argument that he makes is essentially it has largely to do with, you know, translated versions of articles. So if you're if you're writing an article in the English language, but somebody then wants it translated into another language to make it more accessible, is there anything ethically inappropriate about that? And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I don't think probably that's particularly controversial to us. But I do think that in our field, there are cases where self-plagiarism is seen somewhat as a no-no, and yet it's not clear where the lines are. And so for me, the place where this comes up is you're answering a study question based on a database that you have access to. So for example, we work with you know cohorts of, of patients who are on HIV treatment. We write a lot of different papers that are analyzing that database to answer specific questions about HIV care. And every time I write a paper, I then have to get to the section where I describe the clinic and I have to describe where the data come from. I have to describe the patient population and I have to describe the methods by which that data are collected. Now, is there anything ethically problematic and go beyond ethically problematic, just is it considered plagiarism with me just simply taking boilerplate text that I've written the first time and placing that into the next article? Or is that considered plagiarism because I have to hand over my copyright to that publication, to the, to the journal? I no longer own those wording, phrasings, whatever you want to call it. And therefore, I have now plagiarized text that belongs to someone else. Ethically, I think there's nothing wrong. Ethically, I think there's no issue. But that doesn't mean it isn't still potentially plagiarism. And I'm curious what you guys think there. I, I think it's nonsensical to think that it would be or that it it would be it would be in my mind, it would be dysfunctional because if and I think all three of us have have written several, if not many papers from the same project study because there are there are oftentimes a lot of different ways that you can analyze the data. But to be, constrained to explain the the boilerplate method sections sufficiently differently in each subsequent iteration because it's being published in a different journal is i think asking for inaccuracy because you labor over the wordings that you wording that you choose to describe what you've done so that it is as accurate as possible and if you're going to then change the wording just so that it is different from what you consider to be the most accurate way to describe that, then you're, 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 you're creating a, 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 a you know, a, a, the possibility of, of, of error and misinterpretation and misunderstanding. And it just makes no sense for at no all. For no point at all. It makes no sense. Oh, I agree. No, no, I agree hundred percent for no, for no point at all. But, but I do wonder whether, you know, technically do I, you know, if I had to hand over the sign away the copyright to that article? Am I signing away my license to republish that work? Now, I, you know, it seems to me that maybe it's a silly argument because is anybody ever going to come after me for doing this? I mean, I and if can't they do, imagine. wouldn't they look foolish? Yeah. I mean, the, the, for the, doing so? the egregious sin is 
writing the same paper and publish it in two journals. Right. Sure. That's plagiarism. I mean, that's not plagiarism. That's duplication. Yeah. It's not plagiarism. It's duplication. But like, you know, re repeating methodology, whatever, you know, first of all, you wrote it. I mean, may maybe you could say like if paper number one was you know, Matt Fox wrote this paper and paper number two was Dr. X, who then repeated verbatim, who was on your team, but repeated verbatim what you had said in your paper, but didn't reference the fact that he was doing that. That would seem a little bit pushing the even limit. If I'm the, even if I'm a co-author on that paper? No, no. If you were not a co-author on that paper. Oh, I see. You know, okay. so that, that sure. feels like, you know, same database, same research team, but, you know, for whatever reason, you weren't both on it. That, that would seem to me to be crossing the line there because now they're representing what you wrote as what they wrote, which is not true. Sure. But sure. if you're, if you're citing, if you're, you know, you can't really plagiarize. I don't know how you can plagiarize yourself. Yeah. You can though. I mean, there is self-plagiarism. And it is, it is... Like, what is that, though? Like, give, me the, give me a really good example of what that is, other than, like, duplication of papers in two different journals. Well, uh, I suppose, to a certain extent, dividing up publications, you know, the, the salami slicing issue. So it doesn't seem to me there's a problem. I mean, I, 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 there's a reason why people don't like salami slicing. Sorry, if, if I'm using the term and people don't know what I'm talking about, when you essentially take a one publication and you divide it up into many different analyses so you can get more than one publication out of it. It doesn't seem to me that that, that is ethically wrong. I think there are reasons why that can be scientifically a, a poor decision. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't seem to me that's ethically wrong. And yet at the same time, you could end up, you know, essentially writing the same paper twice except for maybe you know small differences in the methods would that be okay or the conclusions mm -hmm. uh, sorry in the the results and conclusions what i meant to say mm -hmm. you know i think i think this is this is where the 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 perhaps not used enough briefly phrase comes in mm -hmm. where you where you you do a thorough explanation of the methods and and some of the core results in, in the main paper and then the subsequent papers that are looking at different aspects of, of, the, of, the, of the core paper, you reference heavily the core paper and you, you leave it to the reader to actually dig up the core paper if they have detailed questions about, about, um, about the methods and, and, and some of the core results. But you, 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 you really just try to, in one or two sentences, summarize what it was for the for the lazy reader who doesn't want to go back and pull the original paper. It's a way of getting so, around this issue, yeah. yeah. But uh, and being right, more well, efficient. Well, so maybe we can we can close off this this discussion by I think so. He the 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 author of this post uh, of this article, excuse me, said um, ended with some advice for those who are considering reusing texts that they had previously published, and these were the the. Five guidelines that that he guidelines is the wrong term, but things to think about. Um, the advice that he gave, he said, assess whether your reasons are ethically defensible. That's pretty open ended. Seek the argument of those. Seek the agreement. Excuse me, of those involved in your first publication. And he says specifically, co-authors, editors, and publishers. Oh come on! In some cases, they're going to say no. Will want, in some cases, publishers will want a specific form of acknowledgement. Seek the agreement of those involved in the new publication that will be re reproducing the material, so obviously so they know. Clearly acknowledge in the new publication that you are drawing on the earlier publication. And where it would be misleading to do so, also note the relationship between the publications in your CV and job or 
grant application. Well, that is his opinion and he's entitled to it. I, however, disagree with almost everything he just said. You, you don't buy it I don't at all. Buy it. I don't buy it. I, Not I don't even know. the first one? Assess whether your reason... Well, yes, we should always do that. But that, that you know, because this is something we should always do, it doesn't need to be stated well, as a rule. But I mean, for me, that's the key, right? Is I? It's hard for me to see how ethically I've done anything wrong if I repeat that text. And therefore, it may be technically wrong somehow because I don't own the copyright, but ethically... I don't know. It just feels okay to me. With all Whereas, so, due respect to Mark Israel, I, I kind of feel like this is a straw man, and I, I'm, I'm not going for it. So, and that is that is that is. I do have a question for you both, though, which is related <laughs> to this, but not really plagiarism per se. Which was, which is recycling abstracts for different conferences, and whether the, whether uh, you how you feel about that, when it's okay, when it's not okay, et cetera. Uh, that's a good question. I I haven't done. Hmm. I have done this. I know I have done this. There have certainly been cases where, you know, you have, oh, no way. I take that back. When I have, to the extent that I have done this, it's when I've submitted to one conference and it hasn't been accepted, so then I'll submit it to another. But I don't know that I've ever tried to present the same abstract at two different conferences, but I don't see why that would be a problem. I mean, why can't I take unpublished work and take it to multiple different places and get multiple sets of feedback right isn't that the point of going to the conference that you're trying to like disseminate your results to your peers you know and educate and also learn in the process i don't but yet and yet the owners of these conferences are often very snooty and say like you know this cannot have been presented at any other conference blah 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 and and i find like that 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 is the kind of thing that a copyright lawyer would say but not someone (laughs) who is sincerely interested in disseminating science for the good of the public health Right, the two are, right. are antithetical. Yeah. All right. Let's let's uh, let's move on. So let's get into our third segment, our amazing and amusing. And I know, Don, you've got something fantastic for us that you're just chomping at the bit. To I get don't know out. about so that. Go for it. All right, Matt. It better be good now. <laughs> set it up. All right. So, um, what I want to report on is an experiment that was done that has not yet been published, but the um, results were announced in various public venues just over the last couple of days. And uh, so I can't cite a specific author or a specific um, journal in which this has been published, but apparently there's a a guy named Beat Wampflair, who is a veterinarian by day and a cheesemaker at night. Hmm. A cheesemaker? A cheesemaker from Switzerland. What kind of cheese? He he specializes in Emmental cheese. Oh, good stuff which he makes in his 19th century cellar in Bergdorf, Switzerland. Okay. And he apparently is very committed to his Emmental, but wants to make it better. And so he, along with a number of um, individuals from, where is it? It is uh, University of Bern, have a hypothesis that the maturation of cheese, the taste that occurs with the maturation of cheese is affected by sound. And so Mm. he has set up a year-long experiment where he has eight 22-pound wheels of the finest Emmental were hooked up to mini transmitters and pumped sound straight into their curds 24-7 to see if bioacoustics have any effect on their ripening process. And wait, 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 what kind of sounds? Well, they had no sound for one group. They had ambient sound from a music group called Yellow, and they played over and over the song Monolith. They had, 
the, ma- the cheese got really the annoying magic at that point. flute was played over and over, as well as the they, had, effects, they had very a good. techno music, which was Vril, and the, the song was UV. Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven. Oh, they had um, a, a medium a frequency choice, at 20, 200 hertz, a high frequency at 1,000 kilohertz. They had hip hop, a tribe called Quest. We got... Love. The jazz, and then also a low frequency a group. One. And different decibel levels, or? No, no, it was just the music itself. But how loud? 20, I don't, I don't know how loud it was. I, they, they didn't specify, we'll have to wait for the, for the, for the, the next report. experiment. So um, they did this for 12 months, and they just broke open the Emmental, and they had a blinded taste test. And mm. it turns out that... The Emmental that was played, A Tribe Called Quest, just fucking out, was deemed to have by far the most delicious flavor profile, having a discernibly stronger smell and stronger, fruitier taste. And for those of you interested in it, I am going to play a short section of that song responsible for a finer form of Emmental. That is great. And was it like the same milk batch for all of them? It was. It was okay. all from the same same batch. So it's a great song. And that that's the cheese. This, this is that's the cheesiest one. This is the song that this is the song that produced the strongest smell and the fruitier taste. Wow. So so I thought well, the the next group that. We ought, to, we ought to taste would be Cardi Brie <laughs> <laughs> or Cheese Whiz Khalifa oh, no. <laughs> or Gouda Chris. <laughs> That's very good. Well, did you really come up with those yourself? Or those I did not. I stole all three of those. And maybe you could, you could wash it down with a nice glass of Don Perignon. <laughs> That is a um, that is a fitting tribute because we lost five this year or last year. That's right. That's wow. right. Yeah. That's very funny. So when the paper comes out, I will I will I will post it on Twitter. We should have a cheese party. Oh, <laughs> really? Okay. Well, in that case, I'm going to go second because mine is in the same family and that it's it's food related. Ooh, cool. And mine is an article from uh, Nature Plants, which the first author was Wei Shi, and I cut it off so I can't tell where that was from. But the um, the title of the article is called Decreases in Global Beer Supply Due to Extreme Drought and Heat. Oh, no. Hmm. And, Seriously? Yeah. And they say beer is the most popular alcoholic beverage in the world. Especially in Boston. Consumed. Yep. And But the yield of its main ingredient, barley, has declined sharply, declined sharply in periods of extreme drought and heat. And so they did this, this fancy modeling and looked at what would happen under global climate change and they find that extreme events may cause substantial decreases in barley yields worldwide average yield loss from 3 to 17 percent depending on the severity of the conditions decreases in the global supply of barley lead to proportionally larger decreases in barley used to make beer and ultimately result in dramatic regional decreases in beer consumption for example, a 32% reduction in Argentina and an increase in beer prices of up to almost 200% in Ireland. Oh, wow. Heartbreaking. So, yeah. So this is this is yet another reason we need to be paying more attention to climate change and doing something about it. I agree. Because not only are we all going to die, but we're going to die gonna have thirsty. Less, I was, I was totally beer. on the fence until now. 
<laughs> yeah. All right. See, this I knew like, this is finally. Now we're officially finally in crisis. Find something to get you to. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Well, Grace, what do you got? I stumbled across this 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 paper. Which I'm not going to tell you the title yet because it'll give it away. And I have not been able to stop sh- talking about it since. I, I tortured my kids and my wife with it, and I even tortured our chair, Pat Hibbard, this morning when she came within range. Uh, I think it's the coolest thing. And I'm going to start with I'm going to start with a quiz for you both, which is Ooh, to I name like the. Name the planets in order, starting with closest to furthest. Closest to what? Closest to the sun and furthest from the sun, starting with the closest. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, my very educated mother, uh, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, Uranus, Pluto, Dolphin. (laughs) Kyber. Kyber. Right. So I think you got it right. So I'll I'll repeat. It's, It's Mercury. Mercury, Venus, Venus Earth, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, yeah. and then Pluto, which is out there, but off the not, ecliptic because it got hit by something some long time ago. It's not really a planet. And it's possibly not a planet in the Kuiper Belt. Okay, so you guys got that right. Now, so now that I got that fixed in your mind, the quiz question for you, the second quiz question, is which, which planet on average is Earth's closest neighbor? Mercury. On average? Okay. On average, which planet is Earth's closest neighbor? Will be Mercury Venus. or Venus. 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 Matt saying Venus? Yeah, Venus. I think because you went Sun, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. But it all depends on the on the shape of the orbit. So Don no, is way ahead of us both. Because I would have agree, I would have given the same answer as you, Matt. And in fact, yeah. I always would, because every time you see one of these posters, you're going to Museum of Science and you see the planets laid they're, out. They're always completely circular, they're but they're not. They're circular, elliptical. But they're not. Right. And so this was the this is the the, the, the turns out that Mercury is the correct answer, is, is on average the closest planet to the Earth, which seems very counterintuitive because it is the closest to the Sun and Venus's orbit is between right. the orbit of Mercury and, and the Earth. But the, the fact that Venus makes the closest approach when Earth and Venus line up with the Sun in a line, Earth, Venus, Sun in a direct line, meaning that they are closest together, Venus has the potential to be, be the closest planet to the Earth, but they are moving. And most of the time, they are not in a line, and Venus could be on the other side of the sun, in which case the average distance is takes the integral of all those differences on the orbit. And so it turns out that that when you apply that that correction, and you do the you do the calculus, and you take the integral of all the places that these two orbiting which things, I'm doing right now in my head. which you can do that that the average distance to um, between Earth and Venus is 1.14 as, uh, astronomical units, and to Mercury is 1.04 astronomical units. And now, wow. so that's the first thing that's weird and wacky about this. But the second thing is the correlator that this is just a general feature of the of the geometry of orbital circles. And that the relationship of every single planet on the sun, Mercury is on average the closest planet to every single other planet on the sun, all the way out to everywhere. Every single one of them, it applies. The same logic applies. Because when you think about like the distance between, say, Neptune and Uranus, right, which are like 33 astronomical units away from the Earth, sometimes they're 66 unit astronomical units apart because they're on the opposite sides of the sun. They're super far apart from each other. And so in every single case, it turns out that the closest closest place to be is as close to the sun as you can be. And in fact, every planet's early closest neighbor, when you take the logical extreme, is in fact the sun. Of course. Of course. (laughs) But it's so cool to think about. That's pretty interesting. I like that. All right. Well, that's the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on. 
You can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at, at ProfMadFox, or Chris at, at ID.Gill, or Don at, at DThea1. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali and Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs> <laughs>